Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask, if you're a fan of the show, to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Dunan J. Jagannathan. With us today is Greg Salmieri, visiting scholar in the philosophy department at Boston University and also co-secretary of the Ayn Rand Society, a professional group affiliated with the American Philosophical Association. And he's here to discuss Ayn Rand's moral philosophy. Greg Salmieri, welcome back to Elucidations. Thank you. It's nice to be back. It's probably surprising to a lot of our listeners that we're doing an episode of Elucidations on Ayn Rand because uh, in addition to being a controversial figure among the general public, she's also not really part of the mainstream in professional philosophy either. Did Ayn Rand think of herself as someone who was involved in conversations taking place among professional philosophers or did she see herself as doing something a bit different? Uh, She definitely thought of herself as a philosopher. And she was, in fact, engaged with conversation to a certain professional philosopher. She had a, a friendship for some time with John Hospers, and they spoke quite a bit, and there are some other examples. But she did see herself as outside of and separate from academic philosophy. She wasn't aiming to be a philosophy professor or to write articles in journals. I do think this is uncommon if we think about the people who we recently think about as philosophers. But if you think about you know, Descartes or Locke, or someone. I mean, there are a lot of examples, and indeed some of the most important examples in the history of thought, of philosophers who were outside of the academy or the mainstream institutions of their day and were posing challenges to the kind of main ideas, doctrines, and methods that were common in those institutions. And I think thinking about her in that light as that type of a figure will put off the question of what stature is she at, because comparing her to someone like Locke is you know, a, a big claim. But just for the moment, just thinking of the sociology of it, so to speak, thinking of her as a figure like that is very clarifying because a lot of the things that people notice about her, academic philosophers, when they read her and find a bit startling or off-putting, are things that you would have thought about Locke, for example, if you were a scholastic reading him. There's a kind of criticizing the tradition from a distance, taking kind of swipes at what these academics are doing that seem very fair to us when we read Locke saying them several hundred years later about the scholastics. But if you were a scholastic ensconced at Oxford at the time, would seem, how could you say we're all the same? Don't you know the difference between the Scotists and the, you know, whatever it is? Um, so I think keeping in mind that kind of a sociological fact about her and where she's coming from is significant. I think she's a figure like these kind of Enlightenment reformers in that way. Thanks, Greg. That's very helpful. Could you say something more about Rand's thought more generally? Yes. Uh, A way to start is to notice that she was both a philosopher and a novelist. And at least with respect to her ambitions, she was a novelist first. And I think thinking about some of what her interests and aims in literature are, are helpful in thinking about her approach to philosophy. So she was what she thought of as a romantic novelist. She admired particularly Hugo, but some other people in this tradition. And 
what's striking about this kind of novel and what she really took from it is there are grand scale moral conflicts. They're motivated by people who have intense, passionate, personal commitments to their causes, to whatever it is that are the aims that they're seeking in the novel, to their values. And there's a focus on this intensity and personal character in the Romantic literature movement, and also on big moral themes. And she thought in the better Romantic writers, the ones who were deeper, people like Hugo and Hawthorne, as opposed to people like Dumas, who were romantic but less deep, more superficial in their characterizations, she thought there was a lot of thinking about the personal choices and the personality that went into the kind of central values that define someone's life course. So these aren't taken as a given that say, I'm for the king, and then we have a dramatic conflict of what I need to do to save the king's daughter, but rather there's a lot of character development involved in the thinking about what are my central commitments in life. And so this kind of forms the context for her thinking about ethics, because she's thinking about what should the central commitments in life be, what should a life be about, and she's at once very focused on the idea of heroism or extreme virtue, or what is it to be really virtuous, but while she has that as an important theme in her thinking, there's also the idea of personal commitment, what makes it your value, your choice, you're fighting to save your love, and so the personal character of the commitment to the values is very significant to her. And you see that coming out in her thinking about egoism and in her meta-ethics and in all kinds of places. So she's an ethical egoist. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. And then the other thread, I think, that goes into thinking about Rand's thinking is a tremendous admiration for, I we think of it as two things, but they're very related and very related in her mind. One is technology, the fact that we live in a high-tech culture, things like skyscrapers, airplanes. She was you know, greatly admired and appreciated these kinds of accomplishments. And also kind of enlightenment valoration of reason. And this is another respect in which I think she, it's useful to think of her in connection with figures like Locke or Bacon, even in a way Descartes, although she was very down on him and somewhat on Locke too, I should mention. But a valoration of reason, what it is to have reason as central to your life, or what it is to hold reason as an absolute is how she put it. And if you combine having this valoration of reason with this being very interested in passionate commitment to values and seeing the values as personally yours that you're very committed to, you're going to want to think a lot about the rationality of basic value choices. What makes values objective? What makes them right? In a way that doesn't thereby make them somehow impersonal or obedience to some standard outside the self that feels imposed. So I think those two kind of sets of issues you can see as motivating a lot of her thinking. Now, where does she come down on things? Well, metaphysically, that is with respect to her view of reality, and I don't think this is something we'll talk very much about, but she was what's sometimes called a metaphysical realist. She believed that the world exists independent of the mind and that the, the role of the mind is to try to know it, to get at how things really are. In epistemology, she was, I said it before, kind of valorizing reason as opposed to what she saw as mystical and subjectivist trends which include, as with the Enlightenment figures, both outright religious mysticism and personal subjectivism, there's no truth, whatever I feel is right, but also philosophical theories that purported to be rational, but that she thought boiled down to accepting some arbitrary emotional commitments and reasoning from them. 
and she had a lot to say about these issues. I don't think we'll spend much time talking about epistemology, but I should say that. In ethics, she is an ethical egoist, which means that she believes that the ultimate foundation of action, one's ultimate goals in acting, should be to benefit oneself, in particular to live in the way that will promote one's own life, so that one's ultimate goal should be one's own survival and happiness, and we could talk about the relation between those, and the standard by which you gauge what actions will promote your survival and happiness is the standard of human life, man's life, what's required for a man to survive and flourish. And in politics, she thought this entailed what she called laissez-faire capitalism. She described herself as a radical for capitalism. So free markets, a government that's limited to the role of protecting individual rights. In aesthetics, which she identified as the fifth branch of philosophy other than the four I've been through so far, she had a, a view of the function and purpose of art and uh, on the basis of it defended what she called romantic realism as a school of art. So as someone who wrote both novels and what we might think of as philosophical treatises, Rand is in a small tradition, at least in more recent times, although it does include other people like Iris Murdoch, and we have to remember even Burton Russell won the Nobel Prize for Literature. I guess there's been some criticism of the novels as being quite heavily didactic, as in a way you know, sometimes just containing within them bits of philosophical treatises. How do you think we should read the novels? It's primarily Atlas Shrugged that has long speeches in it. At one point, a 60-page oration, which is, in effect, a presentation of a whole philosophical system. Most of what you get in her novels that one might think of as more treatise-like are very philosophical conversations between a few of the characters. There's something unique about her way of writing. She has a, a very particular style. She didn't see the novels as didactic. She saw them as primarily novels that their primary value was artistic. But the plots in the novels turn on philosophical issues. And usually, I think in all cases, certainly in, the, in Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, the plot resolutions turn on one or more of the characters changing their mind on a central issue, where they've come to change their mind through interaction with the other characters, not primarily through the conversation with the other characters, but through seeing how the different motives and ideas on which people were acting played out over the course of the story. And the speeches and philosophical conversations are very much part of the plot in that they occur where they do as speech acts, so to speak, motivated by their place in the action, and then which do have causal outputs in the rest of the plot of the story. So they aren't just kind of interjections into the novels. And I think they're not best read abstracted from the novel. I think they make a lot more sense and are a lot more compelling when read in context of the novel. Although you can, I mean, I don't mean to say you can't read them excerpted. They're, I think, good speeches, but they are a lot more powerful and better supported when read in situ. But that said, it's unusual, and it's an unusual genre of writing, and it takes some getting used to to stop at the climax of a story when you don't know what the love interest is going to be resolved and someone might die, and yet suddenly there's a 60-page speech that starts with a long discussion of metaphysics. Ayn Rand has a collection of essays called The Virtue of Selfishness, and that kind of sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? Like selfishness as a virtue 
isn't like the first thing that we teach to a little kid is, no, share your toys with others. And I mean, isn't sort of selfishness obviously a bad kind of behavior rather than a virtuous kind of behavior? Um, I think there were sort of two questions in this question. One is, I, I said before that she's an ethical egoist. That means that she thinks one ought to be acting to promote one's self-interest. So that in itself is a very controversial position, and we could think about how would anyone think that? Is, is a view like that even really immorality? So that's one part of the question. I think we should talk about that. A second part is, of the people who do uh, have held some kind of egoism or limited egoism, the few that there are in philosophy have, with one or two exceptions, been very reluctant to use the term selfish or whatever the, the cognate in their languages were as a positive term. So why not only is she defending this controversial position, but is she doing it in a way where she's sort of throwing it in your face by taking a derogatory term and using it as a positive? So to the latter question, and then we'll go to talk about egoism, her own answer was for the same reason that it frightens you. She addresses this in the introduction. That is, she wants to own that she's taking a very radical position, a position that's not what many philosophers are trying to do, just systematizing what our intuitions are about how we should live. She's posing a challenge to people's moral views. Uh, she's saying there are things we need to change about how we live. And because there are prejudices and false moral views in society, any term that you come up with for what she means by selfishness, for living for your own sake, is going to take on this negative connotation, egoism, egotism, self-interest, and she wants to kind of confront that up front. That said, she doesn't mean by it exactly what most people mean by it. The relation between what she means by selfish and what the conventional meaning of selfish has the kind of relation that you find in cases of racial groups or persecuted sexual minorities reclaiming derogatory terms against them. Like this with queer or slut, there are groups say we're sluts and we're proud of it or we're queer and we're proud of it. And they don't mean that all the negative stereotypes that associate with that term apply to them, but that there is a core that applies to them that is the very thing that other people object to and they want to stand up proudly for that and say that it doesn't lead to all the stereotyped behaviors. Okay, so Rand chose the word selfishness in order to have this polemical effect and in order to kind of you know, reclaim this pejorative term in the way that we've been suggesting. But why would you think that acting in your own self-interest is generally the right way to act? That seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there are some questions we need to ask before we're in a position to think about this. One that's the more obvious of the two is we have to think about what really is in one's self-interest. Is it just whatever one happens to want or desire in the moment? Seemingly not because people take all kinds of self-destructive actions and actions they later regret. So if you're going to have an objective theory of self-interest, which is what Rand does, we have to think, what is it? And once we know more what it is, we might be in a better position to think about whether it is, in fact, what someone should act in or not. But she didn't think that that was the first question, actually, we should ask in ethics. Although she titles her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, and she's big on pushing it because it captures something that's importantly different between her and the cultural mainstream. She says in the introduction to that same book that whether one should be an egoist or an altruist, act for oneself or others, is a kind of secondary question in ethics. The deeper question is, why do we need ethics in the first place? Why do we need morality in the first place? What gives rise to moral concepts? So 
put another way, why is it that there's a need to act one way rather than another? Why not just act willy-nilly on the spur of the moment? Which spur of the moment, of course, is, as Hume and others have pointed out to us, needn't be egoistic. We could have an altruistic inclination to help someone else in a moment. Right? So why is it that one needs ethics in the first place? How do we get into the business of talking about value concepts? What facts give rise to them? And this is, you know, now we're into the subject of meta-ethics. That's at least the contemporary philosophical jargon for it. The area of ethics that thinks not about what you should do directly, but about the nature of the concepts, thoughts, underlying principles that make it the case that we have a discourse or thoughts or theories about what to do and what it is that we're aiming at with coming up with such theories. So compressing a longer story, she thinks that the whole concept of valuing, a value is something that someone acts to gain or keep. It's an end, a goal of action. That this whole concept only arises and is only intelligible in the case of living organisms. And it's not only because only living organisms can act, although I think it's true that only they can act in the relevant sense of act, but it's that to have the idea of a value or a goal as opposed to just an outcome of an action, you have to have the sense of the outcome being directed towards the organism, of the, the thing that's doing the acting, seeking the goal, of it making some difference to the actor whether or not he or it gets the goal. And some different, some things can matter or be goals or the difference they can make to you is the achievement of some further goal. But this can't go on indefinitely. And she thinks the only kind of fundamental alternative that things face that can give rise to action is the alternative between existing and not. And that it's only living things that act in the face of this alternative. It's only living things that ultimately have anything at stake. And so the whole idea of valuing can only come up for a living organism as a valuer, as a seeker of values. So already, if you have that, you have the idea that pursuing a value presupposes an answer of, of value to whom? Whose value is it? The organism that pursues it. And I think that the structure of this reasoning makes it the case that the only possible ultimate value for an actor is that actor's own life, at least in the non-human case. Because the only phenomenon that can give rise to valuation is action in the face of alternatives, and all other alternatives are parasitic on the alternative of whether one continues to exist or not. Again, put aside the human case for a moment because we have free will, and that's going to massively complicate things for her. And that's what she, in fact, thinks gives rise to ethics. So it's not that the animal needs to be alive in order to act. That is, if he's dead, he can't act. It's that he needs to have his life at stake in order to have goals. So in the case of animals, she sees each animal species or each plant species as having a life. And its life is a kind of self-sustaining process, a process that has a kind of logic and order to it in which its parts are the parts of that process all are coordinated by you know, physiological or biological automatic processes around the goal of sustaining itself and maybe to some extent its descendants in carrying on that same process. What's distinctive about human beings is that the mechanism by which we can coordinate our actions towards our own sustenance or towards any other goal is reason, is thought, rather than some biological urge or automatic genetic coding or anything like that. And thought, the faculty of reason, thought operates by choice. So we don't have any automatic course of action, any automatic 
impetus to go out and do what promotes our survival. But we're still living things, and the various sub-faculties we have, like a pleasure-pain mechanism and an emotional mechanism, and just our physiological organs, are all geared to life. And it's only in the context of the pursuit of one's life that any kind of value can ultimately have coherence. She thinks that what we have a need to do is to kind of come up with for ourselves something that does, in the case of the other animals, what these automatic mechanisms do, direct their actions. And what we need to do is form a code of values to direct our actions. That's what she thinks of as a morality, a code of values accepted by choice. And that we need to take our man's life, using man in the generic kind of old-fashioned sense, so human life, as the standard of values. And then we need to each select for ourselves life goals, a project, values, personal values, that fall under the abstractions that make up this moral code. So there's a certain broad, abstract way of living that is the human life, the process by which a human being can sustain himself across his years and can have all of his different values and projects coordinated into a self-sustaining whole. There are certain abstract things that need to be true of a life for it to be like that. And the specification of those things is what she thinks of as ethics. And then for each person, he'll have to select particular values. So for example, you'll need to be rational. That's the primary virtue for her. You need to think. You need to have a productive career so that you're producing the things that you require to survive. But of course, everybody will have different productive careers, and there are many different options. It will need to use reason, those things. And likewise, personal relationships and a lot of other things that we all know contribute to life. It's in the nature of this kind of derivation of the need for ethics, it just sort of comes out of it, that it's one's own life that one's acting for. So far, it seems like what you've described about Rand's ethical views is not too controversial. It seems like a version of what Aristotle, for instance, thought. It seems to me that the most controversial part is the idea of survival as setting all these other aims, because you might think that the concept of life could be understood in a lot of different ways and doesn't have to be understood in terms of survival a mm-hmm. uh, common ancient thought was to think about a life lived well, where that's going to involve being oriented to goals that don't directly contribute to your survival mm-hmm. in an animalistic sense. Yeah, that's a very helpful question. Thank you. I mentioned earlier that she was very concerned with objectively validating values, of showing that there's a reason to think this is the right set of values. And she was very sensitive to the concern that the contents of an ethical system might just be a subjective preference. And if you look at the ancient, the various ancient codes of values, Aristotle and the various interpretations of him, but also Stoicism and Epicureanism and so forth, there's a concern with them that what we're getting is a type of life that the philosopher prefers. And that he's saying, well, this is what a real human life is. It's one in which you're a theoretician, or one in which you have this kind of engagement in the poll. And those people who seem to be happy with their lives which are quite different from my own, their lives are worse, lower, base. They're not leading a truly human life. And, of course, in some sense, any ethicist is going to want to be able to say that. If you just say about anybody, whatever he's doing is fine, you don't have an ethics. You need a way to cut, to distinguish between the good ways of life and the bad, to the rapist turns out not to be leading a good life. But she was very sensitive to the worry of all these things that you call the good life or the life lived well or the life of eudaimonia or the flourishing life, How do I know that that's really better? What's the proof of that? How is it not just our social prejudice, our our cultural preference? And 
she thinks that the connection to survival is what makes the values objective. And I think there were two aspects to it. You could think of what she's doing, but I think it would be a mistake, as taking all the higher values in life, or the things that we might think of as higher values, like art, which she has a book on, and like reasoning and like science, and making them servile and slavish, all in the service of a full stomach and the bottom line. And I think this is how someone like Aristotle would take, at first glance, a theory like this. And there's a sense in which that is what she is doing. She's saying that all of these things, art and philosophy and science, do help you survive. But on the other hand, she's also taking a lot of the things that those people dismissed as slavish, earning a living, technology, you know, just regular productive work, and elevating them, saying these things are good, they have the kind of goodness of art, science, philosophy, they're on a kind of, at a more abstract level, they're the same. And the way she sees it, it's not really the case that science is for the sake of a full stomach, or that a full stomach is for the sake of science. Rather, the goal is the whole life, and we're understanding all of these things as components of it. So if you take a dog's life, you wouldn't say that it runs around and eats for the sake of cellular metabolism. It would be just as right to say it, it engages in cellular metabolism, other plant-like activities, for the sake of being able to run around and eat. But what we really have to do to understand the dog's life is understand the whole process that has a kind of structure to it. And the structure in the case of the dog's life is going to be organized around something like perceptual desire and predation, right? Because dogs are carnivores and they perceive their food and run after it and that's how they get food and that's the kind of essence or centerpiece of a dog's life. Rand thinks a human life, what's playing that role is reason. Reason in its role as identifying knowledge that enables us to identify things as values and to identify ways to produce them. But it's not that any part of that cycle is for the sake of the other any more than it is for the dog. The whole life is for its own sake and everything else is for the sake of that. And if anything's the most important thing, it's a thing that we identify as the central driving organizing principle in the life. And for human beings, Rand thinks that principle is reason. So the broader theoretical motivation for thinking about what it is to lead the good life as acting in your own self-interest has to do with the fact that we're living creatures and as such we have needs that need to be met and therefore can have goals. So the fact that we're living creatures that can think and decide what to do in response to needs we have is something like an enabling condition for morality in the first place, for codes of how to behave and what to do in what circumstance and so forth. So that's the theoretical setting in which it starts to make sense to think of living the good life as acting in your own self-interest. But, I mean, what about lots of situations we might run into where it really seems like the right thing to do has nothing to do with our own self-interest? So, for example, if I'm walking home and I see that a, a, a cyclist by the side of the road who's been hit by a car, most of us have the intuition that, well, we should go help that person or we should at least call 911 or whatever, even though maybe arguably that does nothing for me. We, from my own self-interested point of view, it would be just as well to ignore that person and walk home. And then maybe to broaden that worry a bit, then if you imagine everybody behaving this way, then you know images of something like the zombie apocalypse quickly come to mind of everybody just of being this nasty war where everybody's just out to get what's theirs and you know to heck with everybody else. Surely that's not where Rand wants uh, human civilization to go. I think that's right. And one way to, to think about um, why that wouldn't be where this would lead 
or shouldn't be, is surely none of us would be better off in the zombie apocalypse. So if we find that the way we're acting is bringing us towards zombie apocalypse-dom, uh, or towards some horrible Hobbesian state, that is pre-state Hobbesian situation, we have good reason to think it's not in our self-interest to keep acting that way. Now, you might have concerns about maybe we should free ride on other people not acting that way. We can get away with it so long as other people do. But I think that's a first indication that, that uh, the kind of life that would lead to that outcome is not a life that's in anyone's self-interest. Now, there's a certain way of answering this kind of question, why is it in one's self-interest to help others, to treat others respectfully, to treat others in some way other than being indifferent to them, or else even worse than being indifferent to them, treating them as things we ought to exploit as means to our ends. And there's a kind of first answer to that, which I think you find in Glaucon in Plato's Republic and in Hobbes, which is sort of right in so far as it goes, but doesn't go far enough, I think, and I don't think Rand would have thought that is. If you have a conception of any particular things you might think that are in your interest, like, say, just crudely making a lot of money or having a house and not having the house burned down, you'll quickly learn that if you start treating other people awfully or even being indifferent to them, you're going to have a society where you're not going to be as well able to secure those ends. But... I think even that, Rand thinks there's a deeper answer to this kind of question than that. Because what we haven't spoken about much yet is what your self-interest consists in. And it's not that whatever things you think are good for you are good for you, whatever things you want are good for you, or even in her view, that things that would in an obvious, superficial, short-range way have a life-sustaining impact, like more food or more money or something, are always good for you you need to be thinking, on her view, about the type of life you're leading and whether this is a life in which you're doing what it is the essential thing that a human being needs to do to survive. And what is that? Well, the essential thing that a human being needs to do to survive, she thinks, and again, we could talk at some length about why she thinks this, is to use his mind to identify and produce values, to create new values, to do something the kind of activity that farming is an example of, or building a factory, or designing a new product, or just intelligently working within the confines of a farm or a factory. To do something like that where you're adding value to the world. Now, if you think that way and you think that that's what's in your interest, then first of all, you're not going to think of other people as prey for you. It's not what's in your interest isn't a life of taking their stuff, which is what I think really leads to the apocalypse. It's a life of making stuff. But then what about helping other people? Well, if you think of what a human life is, what you're after and what they're after, as a life of creating value, and so far I've been talking about material values like you know, products of food and wealth and shelter, but this applies across the board to all kinds of values for her, including artistic values, cultural values, and the kinds of values of character that we get so much pleasure at from one another in the confines of friendships and romantic relationships. You see other philosophy podcasts. Philosophy podcasts, yeah. yes. When the other people are behaving well, you see the other people as a tremendous source of value. And this applies to particular other people who have done something good, but also applies in a more general way to people in general, as each a tremendous source of something great, a great potential. And just in light of that, if you see someone suffering, someone harmed, someone hurt, you're going to be motivated to want to help them and to see that as part of what's good for you, helping them. 
Now, it'll be part of what's good for you, and you're going to have to place it in the context of your other value. So if some guy's a little bit hungry, and you're not going to turn your whole life on end to be his worker to give him food, but uh, even if it's through no fault of his own. But where we're talking about the kinds of cases like the girl on the bicycle example, where there's someone in a lot of distress, and through a very trivial action, you could help them out a lot. What kind of a person, what kind of a view of other people would you have to have to be indifferent to and not want to help another person? Not a view where you view them as tremendous values. And so Rand thinks any decent person would be motivated to help in that kind of a situation. And it would be wrong not to. It would be a failure of the virtue of integrity for her, where integrity is the virtue of acting on your values. Okay, so it seems like we've rescued Rand from these problems of personal human interactions one-on-one where if I do see someone suffering, then I have a reason to help them. But thinking about what a good society looks like, philosophers often talk about distributive justice, which is allocating enough material resources, if those resources are scarce, to different members of society to enable everyone to flourish. If I'm following this moral code or moral philosophy that Rand has proposed, why should I have any reason to care about those kinds of issues? where that involves people I don't actually know or may never meet? Well, I don't think that whether you know or meet the people is the essential issue. I mean, if you learn about somebody, it's just a less perceptually vivid example of what's happening with the girl on the street. But I think there's a question here about how to think about distributive justice and whether that's a reasonable way to think about it. I think Rand would think that it isn't. To think of something as distributive justice has the idea that there's some pot of goods and there's someone, or maybe all of us collectively, who have some right to distribute those goods, and then have to think about what the just way to distribute them is. And of course, there are situations in which that arises. But to think about society as functioning on a principle of distributive justice, you have to think of the products, the things that are produced, the material values that you're distributing, or other sorts of values, as at some point being in some common pot, at least morally being owned in common, and then needing to get distributed. And Rand thinks that that's really wrong. It projects an attitude that she describes or or pillories as the goods are here. How did they get here somehow? Whereas in fact, she thinks human beings are productive and the source of values is people's producing them. Now, each human being is an individual living organism who she thinks has to act for, pursue his own life and the values it requires individually. Of course, we can interact and gain a lot from interacting, but the locus of action, the locus of directing, the locus of selecting things as values, and then selecting plans to pursue, even deciding what's the value, is something that's inherently done by the individual, because reason is a faculty of the individual. So valuing something, wanting something, thinking something's good, recognizing its value, is inherently an individual activity, and so is producing the value. Even if we produce the value through a cooperative effort, it's each of us individually thinking and then coordinating our efforts to produce it. So the values start, they only come into existence in connection with particular people. And she thinks for that reason, those people rightfully own them. So there's not at any point an issue of a common pot of values and what the just distribution of it is. Now she thinks that since everybody has this ability, in a free society, people will tend to prosper, everybody will be able to, barring some rare, tragic circumstances of someone with a horrible disability or something, will be able to provide for himself and prosper, and will be happiest doing that. 
uh, at least any rational person will be happiest doing that, rather than, in effect, being a parasite off of other people's productive work. And for the very small minority of people who, for some tragic reason, are unable to do that, they'll be like the person in the tragic circumstance we just discussed, where people will have every reason to feel bad about that and to do what they can to help him. So, I mean, there are a lot of political questions, and I don't, it seems we don't have time to address all these, about why she thinks society will work that way, why other people think it won't, but that's the nature and the shape of the view. So I think the most common worry that people have about Ayn Rand is uh, she's, I think, popularly viewed as encouraging a sort of contempt for the poor or a sort of a callous attitude towards the suffering of other people. But it seems based on what we've just been saying so far that maybe that's a bit of a misconception. Or is it? Well, certainly not contempt for the poor. I mean, she has any number of characters who are heroes who are poor and are trying to pursue some cause that they regard as great but leaves them for some period in poverty. Think of Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead, if you've ever read it, who's, you know, reduced to working as a backbreaking manual labor. What I think it's more reasonable to think she has contempt for is the incompetent, people who aren't able to produce anything, who aren't any good. But even there, and she does say some nasty things about such people, but even there, to think that that's a very large class of people, and she didn't, and to think that that class of people is the people who are currently the poor, which she didn't uniformly think, has to do with the person interpreting it, not with her way of thinking about it. She thought human beings have what it takes by nature to make the things they need to live, that some people don't live up to that, and if they don't live up to it by choice, that is contemptible. And then other people are prevented or held back by bad uh, social conditions, particularly by government policies, from doing it. And those people, they're admirable to the extent that they do the best they can to lead the best life for themselves they can in their situation, and they're worthy of moral censure to the extent that they don't. But so are the rich who are like that. I mean, all the villains in her novels are rich people and uh, people of great influence. There aren't these kind of horrible paupers who are the villains of any, any of her works. And even in her pieces on the state of the world, on current events and historical trends, the villains are not some poor people who maybe are on a government handout. The people who she holds responsible are politicians, people like Richard Nixon or John F. Kennedy. And the people whose ideas, she thinks, shaped a world in which these kinds of people come to power, people like Kant and Mill. So it's philosophers, intellectuals, and then politicians who are the villains when their bad ideas and bad policies lead to a situation in which people aren't able and or aren't properly motivated to live in the way that she thinks is best, to lead a good human life. Not the people who are either through no fault of their own or through minor, comparatively minor fault of their own induced to not live up to what they could. And she wants to rouse us all to try to make that kind of life for ourselves and to try to make the kind of society where everyone is free to make that kind of life for themselves. Greg Salmiri, thank you very much for participating in the productive activity that is creating an interview with us. Thank you. I viewed it as productive, too, and rational. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. 
Thanks again for listening. Thank you.